The most perilous job in journalism is that of the war correspondent. This is the reporter who goes behind enemy lines, who dodges bullets, who experiences combat armed only with laptop or maybe even just pad and pen. The war reporter travels to the battlefield to detail the progress and the welfare of the troops. God also has his war correspondence. On occasion, Hebrew prophets don military fatigues, and they brave the ravages of war to report to us on the outcome. But what's most amazing about God's war writers is that they're often dispatched into the future to cover battles that have not yet taken place. Imagine being a war correspondent, and your editor tells you that you're being sent to cover a battle that won't take place for another 2,600 years. Well, this was the assignment given to Ezekiel in chapters 38 and 39. Ezekiel was sent in a vision to cover a battle that has yet to occur to this very day. According to verse 8, it won't take place until the latter years. Verse 16 reads, the latter days. Both are euphemisms for the end of time. These events unfold after the Jews are regathered to the mountains of Israel but before the return of the Lord and the reestablishment of God's kingdom. Now recall, in chapter 36, we studied God's new covenant. In chapter 37, Ezekiel recounted his vision of the dry bones. And the essence of it was that the Jews are going to be regathered to their land. God is going to turn the desert into a fruitful garden the waste cities into thriving, bustling metropolises. And all that has taken place, even in our generation. The Jews have been regathered to their ancient home. In chapters 40 through 48, we're going to move ahead on the timeline to the millennial period where Jesus comes back and reigns over the earth. We're going to talk about the temple that will be built during the millennial kingdom and the boundaries of Israel after Jesus returns to reign over the earth. But between the regathering of the Jews to the land and the reestablishment of God's kingdom in the coming of Christ, a clash of northern nations is going to occur in the mountains of Israel. Russia and her allies will fight. Not only Israel, as a matter of fact, Israel will be the least of Russia's worries. No, Russia's will invade the land and pick a fight with God. Russia and her coalition will be destroyed, and the result will be a regeneration in the hearts of the Jewish people. And this spiritual regeneration is the third fulfillment of the new covenant that God promised to His people Israel. A couple of things to begin with. Ezekiel 38 and 39 is not the battle of Armageddon which comes at the end of the Great Tribulation. It's not the battle in Revelation 20 that occurs at the end of Jesus' thousand-year reign. Though that battle goes by the same name, its characteristics are far different. This is another battle that occurs in the latter days. When exactly it'll happen, we don't know. But this battle will help set the stage for the events of this Great Tribulation. Well, chapter 38 now begins with Ezekiel listing the players in this future battle. First the bad guys, then the good guys, then the extras, 
then finally the hero. Well, verse 1 begins. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against him and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. Now Ezekiel begins with the leader of this coming invasion, a Gog from Magog. Gog is probably a title more so than a proper name. And this Gog is the one who will lead this Russian-led coalition. Now in Genesis chapter 10, we have what is often called the Table of Nations. It's a genealogy. This chapter tracks the formation of the nations following the global flood of Noah's day. It lists Noah, his three sons, and his 70 descendants, who then go out and settle this post-flood world. In fact, every ethnic group on planet Earth today can be traced back to one of those tribal groups mentioned in Genesis chapter 10. It's interesting, as history has rolled on, the names of people and places have changed, but not the tribal names of their ancestors. And that's why Ezekiel uses these ancestral labels to identify the players in the future events that he prophesies. For example, Magog. Magog referred to a people who settled north of the Caucasus Mountains, which has always been the natural border between the Middle East and Russia. In antiquity, these people were known as the Scythians. Scythians were the ancestors of the modern-day Russians. Josephus, the first-century Jewish historian, also referred to the Scythians as Magog. As did the Chinese, by the way. In fact, the Arabs used to call the wall of China, the Great Wall of China, the Wall of Magog, since it was built to keep Russia out of China. Magog, by all accounts, stands for the Russian people. Meshach and Tubal were names given to the people north of the Black Sea and are linked linguistically to two Russian cities, Moscow and Toblitsk in Siberia. Meshach was the name of the Eastern Russians, while Tubal was the name of the Asiatic Russians. Rosh is not included in Genesis 10, but it's mentioned in the Quran, and it refers to the people who dwelt among the Scythians. It's probably a root for the word Russia. And so here we have a Russian-led coalition that is going to invade Israel. It's interesting that Russia is the only non-Muslim country in this coalition prophesied in chapter 38. But that's only if the invasion happens today or in the very near future. Did you know that today of Moscow's 10 million people, 25% are now Muslim? I think the evils of abortion combined with a low birth rate among the Russian traditional population is shrinking the number of Russians. It's allowing Islam to swell its ranks. Today, Russia's army is made up of 50% Muslims. By 2050, Russia will have a Muslim majority. The more Muslim Russian, Russians that are produced, it becomes easier for this Russian-led coalition to lead this assembly of nations in Ezekiel 38 into the land of Israel. 
As a matter of fact, any doubt as to the identity of these invaders gets cleared up in verse 15, where they are identified as coming out of the far north. If you take a world map, find Jerusalem on that map, and move north along the same longitudinal line, it eventually bisects the city of Moscow. Moscow is directly far north of Jerusalem. All serious biblical scholarship agrees that the four names here in verses 2 and 3 refer to the people of Russia. Bible teacher Zola Levitt, he points out how preposterous this prophecy would have seemed at the time it was written, during the days of Ezekiel. He writes this, The Middle East was, in Ezekiel's time, a most advanced civilization, the world's center of scientific knowledge and refinement of culture. It had dominated the Mediterranean for a period of over 2,000 years. Its magnificent architecture, religions, and military might were acknowledged and respected throughout the civilized world. But Russia, so far as anybody knew, was inhabited by roving bands of virtual cave people. At the time of Ezekiel's writing, the Russian people lived on the fringes of civilization. They were uncouth, uncultured a nation of nomads and barbarian tribes. No one in Ezekiel's day would have ever dreamed that one day they would become major players on the world stage. And yet, God says in verse 4, I will turn you around and put hooks into your jaws and lead you out. And with all your army, horses and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Notice, God is going to set his hook in the Russian's jaw. Like a skilled fisherman who tugs his line and sets his hook in the mouth of the fish, God is going to catch Russia and reel them into Israel. The point is, is that God is the one who's pulling the strings. And we need to realize this. Ultimately, military policy isn't established in the war rooms of Russia, in Moscow, nor is it established in the Situation Room in Washington, D.C. No, ultimately, all these policies are established in God's war room in heaven. He is the one who's pulling the strings. He is a sovereign God. He is the one who's manipulating the nations. And God will provide Russia and her allies with irresistible incentives, a hook in their jaw, to invade the land of Israel. That's no secret Russia has long coveted the land of Israel for many different reasons. Its warm water ports, its strategic location, its mineral resources, most recently its natural gas reserves, but probably most importantly has been its agricultural capabilities. Today Russia's economy is in shambles and it's constantly struggling to feed its people. Israel's fertile farmland would be the breadbasket for the Russian motherland. But perhaps the, most, the greatest incentive for Russia to invade Israel isn't as much economic as it is religious and political. As I said before today, Russia is 20% Muslim and growing. The Central Asian countries that were former members of the Soviet Union are all Muslim, and the allies mentioned in the next few verses that we're going to study are Muslim as well and have a deep hatred for Israel. Russia has plenty of religious and political incentive to move into the land of Israel. 
In recent days, Russian President Vladimir Putin has sent Russian troops and jets into the Middle East to prop up the crumbling government of the Syrian uh, army of King Hassad. The upstart Muslim caliphate known as ISIS now threatens the governments of Syria and Iraq. And it's the U.S.'s unwillingness to take definitive action that has opened the door for Russia to become a player again in the Middle East politics. The point is, she is creeping closer and closer to the mountains of Israel, just as Ezekiel predicted in Ezekiel chapter 38. Now notice Russia's allies in this invasion. He lists them in verses 5 and 6. Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya are with them, all of them with shield and helmet. Now until 1935, Persia was the official name of what is today Iran. On April the 1st, 1979, Iran became the world's first Islamic republic. It's hard to believe that just prior, or that prior to the ouster of Shah Pahlavi, Iran was Israel's ally. Just 30 years ago, these two countries were on the same side. Not now. Today, Iran is run by radical Islamic clerics, jihadists, who believe that the Mahdi, or the Muslim Messiah, is on the horizon. And it's their obligation to pave his way by wiping out Israel and the United States off the face of the earth. As a matter of fact, on October 26, 2005, former Iranian President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad said it clearly to a group of Iranian students, and I quote, Israel must be wiped off the map. This is why Iran is the world's leading sponsor of terrorism. Iranian officials believe that Allah has chosen them to bring down the West by creating carnage and chaos all over Europe and in the United States. Thus, Iran funds terrorist groups like Hamas and Hezbollah in Israel, They even fund Al-Qaeda. Since the Jews have been regathered to their land, their Muslim and their Arab neighbors have gotten angry. They've become jealous. And even more so in light of Israel's military successes. Over and over, the Arabs have invaded the land of Israel. And each time they invade, Israel wins. In 1948, in 1956... In 1967, in the Yom Kippur War of 1973, again in southern Lebanon in 1982, every time the Arabs have attacked, Israel has gained territory. This is what's given rise to the evil of terrorism. You see, terrorism is the war of choice for weak and defeated people. Iran has supported terrorism as she's tried at the same time to develop nuclear weapons. Iran needs an Islamic bomb to level the playing field with Israel. And with President Obama's recent treaty with Iran, the U.S., it seems, has played right into their hands. Six million Jews were killed in the Holocaust. Today, six million Jews live in the borders of Israel. And the Iranians want... Nothing less than to orchestrate a second holocaust, which they can do if they obtain an Islamic bomb. And this is the debate that's going on right now in the administration of Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli prime minister. 
even as we speak, minds are together. They're debating the question, when do we strike? When do we attack? They can't let Iran procure a nuclear bomb. But if they attack, they can be sure that Iran will retaliate. Could that be the spark that starts Ezekiel 38 and 39? It's no surprise that a member of this future alliance with Russia to invade Israel includes Persia or Iran. Along with Iran, two more invading countries are mentioned. First is Ethiopia. At least that's how it's translated. The actual Hebrew name is Cush, which refers really to the upper Nile region, what is today the Sudan. This, of course, may include Ethiopia as well, but the focus is certainly on Sudan, which today is a radical Islamic Sunni state closely allied with both Iran and Russia. The Sudan is also strongly anti-Israel. In the 1990s, it was the Sudanese who harbored Osama bin Laden. They've actually hosted terrorist camps within their borders. As has Libya, the next name on his list, or in the Hebrew, Put. Today, Libya is the North African area of Libya and Algeria. This is what the Bible calls, calls Put. Countries that are also today allied with Russia. And they are extremely anti-Israel. Russian hostility toward Israel and the Jews runs deep. As it does in Libya, Sudan, in, all the, in Persia and Iran. As a matter of fact, Mother Russia has had a long, long record of anti-Semiticism. Since the birth of the nation Israel, Russia has been the staunchest supporter of the Arab nations that have tried to destroy Israel. Russia has supplied the Arabs with billions of dollars in weapons to fight against Israel. As a matter of fact, on several occasions, Russia has been on the verge of invading Israel herself. They came extremely close. In 1973, during the Yom Kippur War, the Syrians using Russian tanks spilled over the border into the Golan Heights. They came on Yom Kippur, the day when they thought Israel would have their guard down thanks to some gallant fighting and what is today recognized as nothing short of divine intervention. The Syrians were beaten back in the north. In the south, Egypt invaded. Ariel Sharon and his troop brigades won victories in the Sinai and pushed them back. As a matter of fact, Sharon wanted to cross the Nile into Egypt. That's when the Soviet premier at the time, Leonid Brezhnev, sent a message to President Nixon. He said that unless he called off the Israelis, the Russians would invade. We now know that Russian paratroopers were boarding planes for Cairo when Henry Kissinger hammered out a ceasefire between the Arabs and the Israelis. Once more, we came perilously close to this battle described in Ezekiel 38 and 39. In 1982, when the Israeli troops moved into southern Lebanon to drive out the PLO, there they found evidence of Russian involvement, stockpiles of food and weaponry, enough firepower to support a half million troops. A potential Russian invasion was again thwarted. They even found a document detailing attack plans for August 1982. The Israelis beat them to the punch by two months. Plans for Russian expansion were tempered after the decade-long quagmire in Afghanistan and the fall of the Soviet Union in 1980, 1991.
But the Arab nations continued to be the chief market for Russian weapons. And Russian nationalism, again fostered by Putin, has moved Russia back into the Middle East. For now, on the side of the Syrians, following the Arab Spring in 2011, Russia made arms deals with the Saudis and again with Egypt. And Obama and the U.S. retreat from leadership in the Middle East has given Putin plenty of opportunity to fill the void with Russian influence. In 2013, Putin asked for $770 billion to fortify his military. Long story short, the Russians are coming. They've never lost designs on the coveted mountains of Israel. And they'll come with Gomar and his troops. Some have traced Gomar to the current country of Turkey. As a NATO ally, Turkey has been an ally of Israel until just recently. Radical Islamists are threatening to take over in Turkey, and they're uh, taking the country radically toward the jihadist and anti-Western. Ezekiel also mentions the house of Togomar. This name is attached to the Turkish-speaking peoples across the Caucasus in Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan, as well as the countries of Central Asia, Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Tadhikistan, Kyrgyzstan, all the stands there in Central Asia. And what do all these people have in common? Well, they're all Muslim fundamentalists. They're jihadists who hate the people of Israel. Ezekiel says that they'll come from the far north. In all its troops, many people are with you. And again, this is the giveaway. The leading invader will come from the north. And then God speaks to the invaders, verse 7. Prepare yourself and be ready, you and all your companies that are gathered about you, and be a guard for them. The word guard can also mean supplier, how apropos being that Russia is the leading weapons supplier to all these nations. He continues, after many days you will be visited. In the latter years you will come into the land of those brought back from the sword and gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate. They were brought out of the nations, and now all of them dwell safely. This invasion is going to occur at a time when the Jews have been regathered and that Israel is dwelling in relative safety. At that time, you will ascend, coming like a storm, covering the land like a cloud, you and all your troops and many peoples with you. What better way to describe a massive invasion of Russian paratroopers than like a storm, like a cloud? Your troops will cover the land. Thus says the Lord God, On that day it shall come to pass that thoughts will arise in your mind, and you will make an evil plan. You will say, I will go up against a land of unwalled villages. I will go to a peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them, dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates. Now remember, in this vision, Ezekiel is paying a visit to the future. Ezekiel has never seen an unwalled village. Ancient cities were always surrounded by stone wall encirclements, encampments. Unwalled cities are modern designs. But here he sees Israel dwelling in unwalled cities. 
He also sees them dwelling safely. And understand, this word isn't the word shalom or peace. This Hebrew word is translated batak, which can carry the sense of being cocky, being careless. You know, you've settled into the land. You have this cockiness, this carelessness. It could be that this invasion occurs when Israel drops its guard. Today, Israel has the best air force and ground troops in the Middle East. The air dome, the Iron Dome, a defense missile system, protects it from incoming projectiles from its Arab neighbors. Israel has the best intelligence in the world. Is this all enough to make Israel overconfident? We'll see. But the day will come when that will be the case. Though we're not told when this battle occurs, we know that the final week of Daniel chapter 9, the seven years of the Great Tribulation, begins when Israel signs a covenant with the Antichrist. Perhaps it's this kind of covenant or peace treaty that creates a false sense of security among the Israelis. If that's true, if that's the event that causes this feeling of safety, this would place the battle of Gog and Magog after the rapture, but at the beginning of the Great Tribulation. As we'll see, the battle... This battle is the end of Russia, and it will deal a severe blow to radical Islam. Once those forces are gone, there's nothing stopping the rise of the Antichrist. Now, there's no doubt that Israel today longs for peace. Over and over, they've negotiated with doubtful partners. In the 2006 election of the Palestinian parliament, the Hamas party, the Hamas are the avowed terrorists. They won hands down over Fatah. Obviously, the majority of Palestinians today want the destruction of Israel, not peace with Israel. And yet the Israelis keep going back to the negotiating table, trying to hammer out some kind of workable, believable peace. One day, they'll feel like they've achieved it, only to be double-crossed. You know, as a matter of fact, there is a principle in Islam known as al-Taqiyah, which allows for a Muslim to lie with impunity if it advances the cause of Islam. Hey, if that's the case, how can you negotiate? If someone can lie with impunity if it advances their cause? Will there ever be a peace that Israel can really trust? Well, apparently they think so, but again, it'll backfire. Well, verse 12 declares the invader's ambitions to take plunder and to take booty, to stretch out your hand against the waste places that are again inhabited and against the people gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods who dwell in the midst of the land. As it says in the Revised Standard Version, who dwell in the center of the earth. Literally, Jerusalem is the center of the earth. It's the world's navel or belly button, as they say. As a matter of fact, in the Jewish Midrash, which is a commentary on the Jewish Old Testament, there is a statement. It reads, As the navel is set in the century of the human body, so is the land of Israel the navel of the world. Situated in the century of the world, and Jerusalem in the century of the land of Israel, and the sanctuary in the center of Jerusalem, and the holy place in the center of the sanctuary, and the ark, in the center of the holy place, 
and the foundation stone before the holy place because from it the world was founded. You know, it's the belief of the Jews that there in the center of Jerusalem, there on the mount, the temple mount, that that is where you know, the earth was founded. That's the very center of the earth. It's always exciting to me. It's thrilling to me whenever I go to Jerusalem. I always like to go to the Temple Mount, and I like to stand right there in the spot, which is believed to be the foundation stone over which the Holy of Holies dwelt and on which the ark set. And you can stand right there on that foundation stone. According to Ezekiel 38, verse 12, you are literally standing at the center of the universe when you stand in that spot. And that's the spot, I believe, from which Jesus will reign over the earth after he returns. Now, in verse 13, four more characters enter the drama. Sheba, Dedan, the merchants of Tarshish, and all their young lions will say to you, Have you come to take plunder? Have you gathered your army to take booty, to carry away silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods, to take great plunder? These four nations, they sort of confront this Russian invasion and this Russian coalition. They they confront them, though, with rhetoric. They ask them questions. They try to uh, talk them down, so to speak. Sheba and Dedan were two tribes that lived in the Arabian Peninsula. Today, this would be the country of Saudi Arabia. Tarshish was an island in the western Mediterranean. And we don't really know the exact identity of Tarshish. It could possibly be Spain. It could even be the British Isles. Ezekiel 27 verse 12 identified Tarshish as the producer of tin. Britannia is the land of tin. It could be the British Isles. You remember when God told Jonah... To go to Nineveh. He ran the opposite direction. As far from God's will as he could. He bought a ticket to where? To Tarshish. That was the farthest west he could travel. If Tarshish does refer to Britain. That means that their young lions. Could be her offspring. The Canadians. The Australians. And of course. Us. The Americans. If that's true, this is probably the only place in the Bible where the United States is actually mentioned. And notice what these young lions do along with the Saudis and along with Tarshish. In the face of this naked aggression of this Russian-Arab alliance, all they do to help Israel is to scold the invaders. Rather than take action, all they do is talk. They defend Israel Not with rifles, but with rhetoric. All they do is sponsor a UN declaration. The nations slap Russia on the wrist. But they don't lift a little finger to actually help the people of Israel. That certainly resembles our current president's support of Israel. Perhaps the most interesting sign when it comes to end times prophecy may just be The United States' slow and subtle abandonment of Israel. Who would have thunk it? Today, pro-Palestinian sentiment continues to grow in Europe and in America. Obama is the first United States president 
who is not ideologically committed to Israel. And it's shameful the way Obama has snubbed the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on his recent visits to the United States. With the deterioration of our Judeo-Christian values in America, the reason for our supporting Israel is eroding. And if we lack a biblical basis for supporting Israel, will sheer pragmatism be enough? Given the Arab world's oil reserves, will Israel, being our only democratic ally in the region, stay reason enough to warn our support? Only time will tell. It's sad, but I believe the chief reason God continues to bless the United States is because of His promise to bless those who've blessed Abraham and his descendants, the Jews. I believe it's our support of Israel that has warranted God's blessing on our nation. But you've got to assume that if we turn our backs on God's people, then God will turn His back on us. Well, verse 14 tells us, Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to Gog, Thus says the Lord God, On that day when my people Israel dwell safely, will you not know it? Then you will come from your place out of the far north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great company and a mighty army. Now those who keep to a literal, strictly literal interpretation of this passage, they point out that Armenia in the Caucasus has always been home to the Russian Cossacks, or their cavalry. Here we're told that horses will be employed in combat. You know, this is still the case in places like Afghanistan, in the mountainous terrain. They still ride on the backs of horses. Though you think that tanks, in an era of tanks and Humvees, a horse would be outdated. Perhaps not if an army's faced with an oil crisis. Horses might come in handy. The Hebrew word, though, horse here, literally means leaper, which could broaden the identification of what Ezekiel is describing to maybe even a modern Russian attack helicopter, a leaper. You will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It will be in the latter days that I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I am hallowed in you, O Gog, before their eyes." Notice the reason God has put the hook in the Russia's draw, jaw, has dri- drawn her down into the land. Notice the reason. God's purpose for this invasion is that the nations may know me. God is going to reveal himself, his military might, his faithfulness to his people through this invasion. Here's what happens. This invasion sets up a David and Goliath scenario. I mean, this is Gideon's 350 versus the Midianites' thousands. This is Rocky versus the Russian. This is Hickory versus South Bend. That's what this is. This is a lopsided battle that looks like Russia and her invading cohorts are going to overwhelm this small little group called Israel. This invasion sets up impossible odds, but it's in with those impossible odds that God intends to defy those odds and show His incredible might and His amazing mercy toward His people. Verse 17 tells us, Thus says the Lord God, Are you He of whom I have spoken in former days by my servants, the prophets of Israel, who prophesied for years in those days that I would bring you against them? Uh, Apparently, he's saying that this 
invasion is prophesied elsewhere in the Scripture. To be honest with you, I'm just not sure where. There are several possibilities. Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 speak of a calamity from the north. That could be a reference to Ezekiel 38. There are others, uh, but to me it's kind of uncertain. Verse 18, And it will come to pass at the same time when God comes against the land of Israel, says the Lord God, that my fury will show in my face. Wow. How's that for vivid imagery? God says, my fury will show in my face. God's anger, his face is going to get red. You're going to be able to read his anger on his face. God's face will turn red. He'll be infuriated by this unprovoked invasion against his special people. For in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath, I have spoken. Surely in that day there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel, so that the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the beasts of the field, all creeping things that creep on the earth, and all men who are on the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. The mountains shall be thrown down, the steep places shall fall, and every wall shall fall to the ground. An earthquake will originate in Israel of such magnitude that its shock waves will be felt all around the world. This earthquake will totally reshape the Jordan Rift Valley. It will totally change the topography of the region. A colossal earthquake will come to the rescue of the Jewish people. When the army comes down into the mountains of Israel, God himself will intervene with this earthquake to defend his people Israel. Verse 21, I will call for a sword against Gog throughout all my mountains, says the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. Thanks to God's earthquake, the invading troops will be confused. They'll be discombobulated. They'll turn on one another. People will die from friendly fire. Every man's sword will be against his brother. And I will bring him to judgment with pestilence and bloodshed. I will rain down on him, on his troops, and on the many peoples who are with him, flooding rain, great hailstones, fire and brimstone. Thus I will magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. The invasion will be stopped by the hand of God, supernatural intervention this great earthquake. But this also sounds like other phenomena. Perhaps the Russian coalition will launch its bombs on itself. Ezekiel sees the sky raining down with hailstones and fire and brimstone or sulfur. Sounds like a thermonuclear explosion. Apparently, Iran will get her Islamic bomb, but God will turn it on the Iranians. With this coalition of Russians and Muslims who dare to wage war against God's people Israel, God will defeat them and He will be revered or hallowed in the eyes of the world. After their defeat, everyone will recognize the existence and the power of the God of Israel. And as we'll see later, this is the event that is going to wake up the Jewish people. Chapter 39. And you, son of man, prophesy against Gog and say... Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, 
O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. And I will turn you around and lead you on, bringing you up from the far north and bring you against the mountains of Israel. Again, God is the one who's pulling the strings. This phrase, lead you on, in Hebrew, can also be translated, leave the sixth part. This has caused some interpreters to see in this verse a body count. That five-sixths or 85% of the coalition army will be destroyed. He says, then I will knock the bow out of your left hand and cause the arrows to fall out of your right hand. You shall fall upon the mountains of Israel, you and all your troops and the peoples who are with you. I will give you to birds of prey of every sort and to the beasts of the field to be devoured. You shall fall on the open field, for I have spoken, says the Lord God. And I will send fire on Magog and on those who live in security in the coastlands. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. Now, who are the people who live in the security of the coastlands? The Hebrew phrase means literally the distant lands. Could it refer to to people living even in the new world, perhaps even in America? If we fail to stand with Israel when they're invaded, would God pour out the same judgment on us that he uses on his oppressors? Israel's oppressors? If we fail to defend Israel, will we get the same punishment? That comes upon Israel's attackers. Verse 7. So I will make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel. And I will not let them profane my holy name anymore. Then the nations shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. Surely it is coming. And it shall be done, says the Lord God. This is the day of which I have spoken. Then those who dwell in the cities of Israel will go out and set on fire and burn the weapons, both the shields and bucklers, the bows and arrows, the javelins and spears, and they will make fires with them for seven years. Now the word arrow in Hebrew is kayats. It refers to a piercing missile. The word bow is the word keseth, or literally launcher. So bow and arrow are terms supplied by the King James translators. They can just as easily be interpreted missiles and rocket launchers. Remember, Ezekiel is a man who lived 2,600 years, at least 2,600 years before these events took place. He doesn't have the language. He doesn't have the vocabulary to describe some of the things that he might be seeing. And so he uses terms that he's familiar with like bows and arrows and javelins and spears but of course he could be describing modern weaponry. Now they take these things and they burn them for seven years. They will not make wood from the field nor cut down any from the forest because they will make fires with the weapons and they will plunder those who plundered them and pillage those who pillaged them, says the Lord God. God is going to turn the tables on this invading army. That's interesting. Israel, Ezekiel says that Israel will burn weapons as fuel for a period of seven years, which just happens to correspond with the duration of the Great Tribulation, which in Daniel 9 is said to last a total of seven years. How these weapons will be burned is uncertain. But could this refer to nuclear weapons, turning weapons-grade uranium into fuel for nuclear energy? Is that what's going on? It could be. Did you know that after the Cold War, this actually 
started to happen. In 1993, Russia and the United States signed an arms control agreement, HEU, the Highly Enriched Uranium Purchase Agreement. Russia started dismantling nuclear warheads and selling the uranium to American reactors. By the way, the Savannah River plant is one of them. Today, nearly 10% of all the electricity in the United States comes from uranium that was at one time on the tip of a Russian missile aimed at an American city. Every 10 light bulbs in America is illuminated by energy that originally was designed to annihilate us. I think this is one of the best things that's happened in the world over the last 30 years that you've never heard about. But Ezekiel says that this will happen after the Battle of Magog. The Islamic bombs built to wipe the Jews off the map will instead supply Israel heat for their homes. Verse 11. It will come to pass in that day that I will give Gog a burial place there in Israel, the valley of those who pass by east of the sea, and it will obstruct travelers, because there they will bury Gog and all his multitude. Therefore they will call it the valley of Haman Gog. Haman Gog means the multitude of Gog. And for seven months the house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. This sounds strange. How does burying the dead cleanse the land? Just think about that. Indeed, all the people of the land will be burying, and they will gain renown for it on the day that I am glorified, says the Lord God. They will set apart men regularly employed with the help of a search party to pass through the land and bury those bodies remaining on the ground in order to cleanse it. At the end of seven months, they will make a search. Now, why does this burying of these corpses require a special detail and special expertise? Why does this actually gain them notoriety or renown? And why wait seven months to begin? It says the search party will pass through the land, and when anyone sees a man's bone... He shall set up a marker by it till the barriers have buried it in the valley of Haman Gog. The name of the city will also be Homona. Thus they shall cleanse the land. And Homona means multitude. Now notice, first of all, that these corpses aren't buried for seven months after they're dead. And that obviously indicates special circumstances. If a soldier dies from normal battle wounds, he's buried immediately. For sanitary reasons. But not the dead in this battle. And professionals, experts in disposal are hired for the task. One group locates the bodies. Another group actually buries those bodies. Apparently these bodies require special precaution. I believe that we're reading about procedures used to dispose of bodies that have been infected with nuclear poisoning. They've been contaminated by the blast and become radioactive and therefore special precautions are needed before they're buried. Verse 17. And as for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to every sort of bird and to every beast of the field. Assemble yourselves and come. Gather together from all sides to my sacrificial meal. 
which I am sacrificing for you, a great sacrificial meal on the mountains of Israel, that you may eat flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty, drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams and lambs, of goats and bulls, all of them fatlings of Bashan. You shall eat fat till you are full and drink blood till you are drunk at my sacrificial meal, which I am sacrificing for you. You shall be filled at my table with horses and riders, with mighty men, and with all the men of war, says the Lord God. God is inviting the vultures, the scavengers, to come and to dine on the corpses that have been slain in this battle of Magog. He says, I will set my glory among the nations. Notice, I will set my glory among the nations. All the nations shall see my judgment which I have executed, and my hand, which I have laid on them. Can you imagine the reaction of the world leaders, countries all over the world, the new world, China, Japan. Can you imagine the reaction? The God of Israel has defended His people. What a stunning victory this will be. A tiny nation, Israel, over this mighty Russian Muslim coalition. This victory will shock the world. And there will be only one explanation. And that is that the God of Israel has defended His people. Today, 6 million Jews are staring down 422 million Arabs. And to think that Russia will join those Arabs and Israel will still win in the end. Wow. In a sense, the battle of Magog will be the last jihad. God will break the back of the Muslim world and end its hatred of Israel. Some think this victory is what will give the Jews the impetus to finally rebuild their temple in Jerusalem. And there will be only one explanation for this victory. The true God is the God of Israel. And this won't just be recognized by the Gentiles. Oh no. This will also be a sign to the Jews. He says... So the house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. Something will happen among the Jewish people. Their blindness will be lifted. God's intervention on, Israel, of, on behalf of Israel in the mountains of Israel against this northern coalition will be the turning point in the Jews' revival and their return to God. These events force the Jews to acknowledge God is their Savior. And ultimately, that drives them to His Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Up until this moment, Zionism has been a nationalistic movement, not a spiritual one. Yet in this day, God will prove His power. He'll come to the defense of His people. It'll soften their hearts. And it'll eventually cause them to bow to their Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 23. The Gentiles shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity because they were unfaithful to me. Therefore, I've hid my face from them. They sinned. That's why God turned his back. They sinned against him. They followed after idols. He says, I gave them into the hand of their enemies, and they all fell by the sword. According to their uncleanness and according to their transgressions, I have dealt with them and hidden my face from them. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Now I will bring back the captives of Jacob. 
and have mercy on the whole house of Israel. And I will be jealous for my holy name after they have borne their shame and all their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me when they dwelt safely in their own land and no one made them afraid. When I have brought them back from the peoples and gathered them out of their enemies' lands and I am hallowed in them in the sight of many nations, then they shall know that I am the Lord their God who sent them into captivity among the nations but also brought them back to the land and left none of them captive any longer. See, even though many Jews have returned to the land today, many more haven't. There are 6.1 million Jews today living in Israel, but there are 15 million Jews worldwide. There is still going to be a final exodus of Jews back to their homeland. And it's going to be this stunning upset of Russia and the jihadists that'll be the impetus for this final return. And, I will not hide my face from them anymore. What a magnificent promise. The sin, the idolatry, the willfulness of the Jewish people that had caused God to turn His back on His own people will one day be gone. The day will come when He tires of His estrangement from His people. He'll no longer hide His face from them. but He'll look upon them with kindness. God will initiate a fresh work among His people. We're told, For I shall have poured out my Spirit on the house of Israel, says the Lord God. Now let's connect the dots. What is the condition for receiving God's Spirit? What is the one prerequisite for receiving God's Holy Spirit? That's participation in the New Covenant. And what does participation in the New Covenant require? Faith in Jesus. That means that because of God's intervention in the battle of Magog, many Jews will come to know Jesus as their Lord. You remember Revelation tells us that in the great tribulation, there will be 144,000 Jewish witnesses of Jesus. But how did they come to know Jesus? It could be Gog's defeat here in the battle of Gog and Magog. How God defeats them and reveals himself to them. That could be the stimulus for their salvation. I want to close tonight's study with a fitting verse. Romans 8, verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? And of course, the reverse is also true. If God is against you, it don't matter who is for you. Just ask Gog and Magog. They'll cover the mountains of Israel like a cloud. That isn't enough to fight against God. He will prevail. He will defend Israel. He will win the victory as He always does. And God will win the victories for you, no matter your enemy. Just make sure that you are on God's side. Father, we thank You.